I hope you guys had a great Easter uh, celebration with your families last week. As we celebrated here, uh, guys, we had probably 10 salvations total last week. Uh, there were six that were in service, uh, both services, and there were four that uh, people that just approached me after service and shared with me uh, that they'd given their lives to Christ. So we celebrate that. We're going to have a baptismal service. Not, uh, I think it's the week after Mother's Day, which is around the 15th. And I want to encourage you uh, that if you need to be baptized, if you have professed your faith in Christ and you want to follow the Lord in believer's baptism and be part of this church family, I want to encourage you to call the office and let us know uh, that you want to schedule baptism. We're going to have a day outside that is going to be uh, out in the field. We've done that several times. COVID kind of got us started doing that, and we really enjoyed it because it allows both services. There's uh, first services pretty much wall-to-wall almost now, and, and a lot of you guys don't get to see each other except for a few minutes in the hallway, so it's always awesome to get all of us together for one big service, and so that'll be outside on the 15th, I believe, of, of May. So if you need to be baptized, we just encourage you to do that, and we celebrate what God is doing. 1 Corinthians 13, or, uh, chapter 1 is where we are this week. Uh, if you're new to Hepzibah, what we seek to do here is, is we want to teach you the Word of God and the best way to do that is to teach expositionally, which basically means that we're going to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we're going to walk through the Word of God book by book. And uh, if you don't realize it, the Bible is made up of a bunch of letters, especially in the New Testament, that were written by men like the Apostle Paul or some of the other apostles and men like Mark and Luke who were followers of Jesus, and the Spirit inspired them to write these books. And just like any other letter that you would be given, it would be kind of weird to just start in the middle and to teach a, a random place in that letter without making sure that you have all of the context. And so to understand and to really be transformed by the Word of God, we want to walk through it all the way through. So we're beginning this new study in the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you'll turn there with me, we're going to be reading in verses 1 through 9 in just a moment. But as we begin the book of 1 Corinthians, I want you to remember that, that we really today, we live in a world that is confused. And it's not just the world many times that is confused, but sometimes that confusion even finds its way into the church of Jesus Christ. If there was a letter in the Bible that I believe God would have written to the local church today if he was writing the way that he did in the New Testament scriptures through those apostles to churches, that this is likely the letter that, that he would have written to the American church. Because so much of what is happening in the American church is what was happening in the church at Corinth. When we look at the church at Corinth, it was a place that Paul loved. Unlike the Colossians, uh, Paul had met these people. The Colossians, Paul had never met, but he knew these people. He had spent at least a year and a half of his life. If you go to the book of Acts in chapter 18, you'll see that it was Paul that went to the Corinthians. He left Macedonia. If you remember in chapter 18, he was greatly persecuted and in those chapters of the book of Acts, and he was continually moving from place to place. On his second missionary journey, Paul found his way to the Corinthians after having to leave Macedonia. And when he went to this place, he began to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with these people, and there they were saved, and their lives were transformed. And Paul then eventually came under persecution again there the way he had in Macedonia and Ephesus and other places. And literally he had to leave that place and he had to leave this kind of fledgling church. They had risen up leaders and elders and overseers in this place. And the church was beginning to grow. But over time, we find that the church began to backslide. We find that the church began to grow in confusion, and there is a reason why churches grow in confusion, and it is because the world continues to cry out to the church, right? The flesh continues to cry out to the church. The devil is continually seeking to make the church of Jesus Christ stumble, and we live in a wicked culture. The culture that we have today in America is nothing like what it was 50 years ago. I mean, literally, when we look across the landscape, it is confusing, especially for the next generation that is coming up behind us, because we've entered into a time where you can't even tell what's wrong or right. In fact, we've just chosen to say there is no wrong or right. We live in a time where, where literally... Everything that we have said, this is wrong. This is what the Scripture says. This is what we believe to be right or wrong. All those things have been erased, and everything that is ungodly, basically, at this point in American history, we are saying that not only is it acceptable to do it, but we are saying that it must be celebrated. 
in the U.S., not just in the world, but even in the church. You know what we find? That sexual immorality is rampant. Whether it's through pornography, whether it's through fornication, whether it's through adultery, whether it's through abuse, it's staggering figures, not just what is happening out there, but what happens in here, the numbers of people that choose rather than to follow the Lord's will in marriage, we shack up. If you look across the landscape today, the churches in America today, there's one word that you can say for many of them is that they are divided. They are divided because there's a sense of this is my church. In Corinth, there are going to be divisions that we're going to talk about even beginning next week where they're divided because they want to follow this pastor or that pastor and they make it more about a man than they make it about God. The church is fighting the church is arguing. The church is divided. The church is in sexual sin. The church is having to deal with issues around marriage, around issues of lawsuits. They're even having to fight doctrinal misunderstandings where they are holding a position about the resurrection of Jesus Christ that it's not important whether or not Jesus actually rose from the dead. Folks, we don't have a faith if he didn't raise from the dead. And because he was raised from the dead, literally... That means that we have hope, that we can be transformed. And this book of Corinthians is a book that was written to a struggling church. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, loves these people. He loves this church. We know that there are at least four letters that went to the Corinthian church. We have two of them. While Paul was in Ephesus after he'd been persecuted and had to leave Corinth, two years later, there were people from the house of Chloe that went to the Apostle Paul and they needed to tell him that this church that you left that was healthy and growing and thriving, today this is a church that is struggling in sin, that is struggling over many issues, and they wanted Paul to come and to speak into the life of this church and to bring calm in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of all the other noise that they were hearing. They needed Paul to speak, and Paul knew exactly what they needed. You know what they needed? The gospel of Jesus Christ. If there's one thing that you're going to find about the book of Corinthians is Paul's assurance, Paul's conviction that if there is an issue, if there is a sickness, if there is division, if there is immorality, if there are issues in marriage, if there are issues among brothers, you know what he's going to say? The answer to all of the issues that we face in life, they are about the cross of Jesus Christ. You give them the cross, you give them Christ, you give them the gospel, and they will find life. And that's why it's so important what Joseph shared with us. Why does it matter if we go out into the highways and byways? Why does it make a difference if we go out and share and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? Without the gospel, there is no hope. Without the gospel, there is no life. Without the gospel, we don't know how to live. We don't know what we should speak. We don't know what matters in life. Without the word of God, without the gospel of Christ, we will not find purpose. We will not find freedom. We'll never know hope. But with the gospel, everything changes. And what you're going to find is in the first ten verses of this book, Jesus Christ is going to be mentioned ten times over and over. You know what he's going to say? He's going to say it out of the gate. The answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. That's why we've got to go proclaim the name of Jesus. When Melanie and I had our first baby, Sydney was going to be born, and my mother decided that you know she wanted to come and she wanted to be there and be part, and we were happy to have her. And we were getting closer to the, the date, and again, this was our first pregnancy, so we didn't know what to expect, and we were glad mom was coming. And she said, listen, this is the date I'm going to fly in. It's a few days early from Melanie's due date. We should be good. And so we got in the car. And we went to the airport to pick mom up that day. It was in the evening, and it was interesting. The storm was coming in that day. And when we got to the PNC Arena, we were coming up Wade Avenue to get to the airport. When we got to Wade Avenue, it was like we drove into darkness. It was the strangest thing. You ever drive into a storm, and you can, or, or a storm comes upon you, and literally you can feel the, the barometric pressure drop? 
Like you can sense it. It gets 10 degrees colder and everything started to change. And we literally thought, man, is this a tornado? I mean, it was weird the way everything shifted. And in that moment when that pressure dropped, it broke Melanie's water. There was an influx that night at the hospitals because a bunch of people had the same thing happen that were pregnant that happened to Melanie and her water broke. And I'm sitting there as a, as a husband, never having had, and I was panicked. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to think. I mean, literally, I'm looking at Melanie. I'm like, what do I do? Do I get mom? Do I take you to the airport or, or do I take you to the hospital? And then I realized if I show up at the hospital with her water broke, mom's going to kill me. So I knew I needed to go to the hospital. And then as a, a, a patient, loving husband, she said, what do we do? I said, the first thing you need to do is get off my cloth seats. That's, isn't that horrible? Isn't that horrible? It's a wonder she loves me and stays married to me. Is there another guy that would have said that? Anybody? Can I get an amen? You bunch of losers. You ain't is it, y'all are scared. There, thank you. Thank you. I got a witness. We get to the hospital, and literally, you know, you watch TV enough, and, and you think that life is like TV sometimes, right? And I thought that when you would go to the hospital and your wife's water has broke, to me that constitutes an emergency, right? So we came in on two wheels to the hospital, to the emergency room. And I mean, I get out of the car and I just expected people to hit me at the door. There was no one. So I walk inside and I am, I really am panicked at this point, And I don't know if she's going to have this baby in the car or what's going on. And I said, listen, somebody's got to get out here. My wife's having a baby. She's in the car. And as anxious as I'm getting, they're doing nothing. And I'm thinking, isn't supposed to stand up and be like, Go do something stat. You know what I mean? I was expecting, you know the language, you know the lingo. And literally everybody just sat there and looked at me. And finally this woman stood up and she called me son, which at the moment I didn't want to hear that. And she said, son, how about you just go outside and calm down and take this wheelchair and bring your wife in? And I was so disappointed because I really had my imagination going at that point. And, and literally, I'm, I'm going to be honest. In that moment, I was extremely anxious. I was extremely overwhelmed. I didn't understand what was happening, what the future held, what this was going to look like. And I'll be honest, their calm, guess what? It became my calm. And when I realized that they weren't worried, you know what that told me? That I didn't need to be worried. And I believe that what Paul is going to do with the Corinthian church is that he's going to come in to this environment where sin has gotten a hold, a foothold within the church, where literally we see this division and all of this chaos, I believe that what we're going to find is that the things in Corinth, yes, they were in turmoil, but Paul sets up the gospel to be like a lighthouse, to guide them through all of the troubled waters that they are going to face. And for Paul, the gospel, it is the clear, and I hope it is for us, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God's word, all of that, that it is the clear, calm voice that cuts through all of the noise. I want to read you the first verses, and when we go one through nine, you'll see it for yourself, that he's going to mention Jesus Christ no fewer than ten times. He is going to state over and over that it is the gospel of Jesus that brings clarity to our confusion. And so beginning in verse one, he says, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the, res, the re revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I want to begin this morning by helping us first understand a little bit about the letter. We've talked about the Corinthians. We're going to get into that again in a minute. 
But I want to get into to who wrote it. And obviously, we've been talking, it's the Apostle Paul. Unlike in our day, when we write letters, we tend to write who it's to first, and we end the letter with who it's from. Well, in that day, it's reversed. They begin with who the letter's from, and then who the church is to. They put it right up front. It's not even at the end of the letter. It's right there in the beginning. And so we have this salutation that begins this book. And, and really, all of Paul's writings, it's the same style. That's exactly what you're going to find. He's going to introduce himself. He's going to talk about the the people that he's writing to, and then he's going to give some salutation, some form of thankfulness, some form of how he's praying for them and thankful for them. And it's no different in this book. And he begins, and we're going to see three things today. First off, what we see and how he begins is we see the apostles' ministry. As we begin the book of 1 Corinthians, listen, he begins by saying, the one writing this is Paul. Some believe that Sosthenes that's mentioned there is his amanuensis. That would be one who basically, as Paul would speak, he would write. It's the words of Paul, but literally may have been written by another. There are some that believe that's exactly what happened, and that's exactly who Sosthenes may have been and what Sosthenes may have been doing. But what we do know is that these are Paul's words, whether written by him or written by an amanuensis. It's still, this is the letter of Paul. And let's look at how he identifies himself. We see in the beginning exactly how Paul saw ministry, how he saw himself, how he saw his calling in his life. It says, Paul, who is called as an apostle of Jesus Christ. When we think of an apostle, we immediately go to the 12. And Paul was not trying to assert to these people that he was one of the 12 original disciples. We know that Judas was one. And after Judas hung himself, they chose Matthias, who would become another 12th disciple. And, and he's not trying to say that that he was one of those men, but what he was saying was that God gave me, like those men, a specific authority and a specific calling at this moment, at this time, in the formation of the early church. And what we remember is that Paul was called of God on the road to Damascus. When we consider his calling, it was a special moment where literally Jesus Christ spoke to him. Go back and look in your red letter Bible. It is the words of Jesus. He revealed himself and spoke to the apostle Paul. Remember he said, why are you persecuting me? And then he gave to Paul through Ananias, his calling. And if you remember, he said to the apostle Paul that you're going to go and you're going to speak to kings and you're going to speak to princes and I'm going to take you basically around the world. And he said that you are going to share this gospel with the Gentiles. And we know that Paul's heart was for the Jews. He was a Jew of Jews, right? And he would always begin his ministry by going and preaching in the synagogues. But most times when he was rejected in those synagogues, he would go and he would take the gospel to the Gentiles. And he says, listen, I have, I, I am an apostle. If you want to know what an apostle literally means, it means a sent out one. Today, we think in many ways of our modern missionaries as modern day apostles. They are those who have been sent out. But I want you to remember that all of us, all of us, I mean, it's, it's what Joseph spoke to a minute ago. We have to come to grips with the calling that God has on our life. And if you don't know it, I want you to be clear today that every bit as much as anyone else has been sent throughout time, you have been sent. When you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he's going to write the second book to the Corinthians. He's going to say to you and to me, you know what he's going to say? He's going to say, listen, you have been made new in Jesus Christ. The old is past. The new has come, and he's going to literally look at us as believers, and he's going to say, because of what Christ has done, you are new. And not only are you new, he says, but you've been given a ministry, and you've been given a message, and it is a ministry and message of reconciliation, and you are to go, and you are to be my ambassadors, Jesus would say. Folks, that is God's call for you. The Great Commission was not for the few. It was for all of us who believe in Jesus Christ. He just went through that with you. You would say in this room, if you're a believer, that you were a disciple of Jesus Christ. I want you to think about what he just shared with you. He said a disciple is one who hears, one who obeys, and one who what? Shares the word of God with others. If you say that you're a disciple, think about what you're saying. Think about what you're agreeing to. Think about what you're stating. This is God's call for me. This is the purpose for which I live and I exist is to bring honor and glory to God. 
as I profess my faith, as I hear, as I obey, and as I share the word of God. And so for the apostle, he says, listen about my ministry. This is my calling. And what I love is he says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of what? What does it say? By the will of man? Did a committee make him an apostle? Did a board make him a, 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 an apostle? No, he says and he understands clearly that, you know what, the call that I have on my life isn't a call given to me by men. Many of us in this room are waiting for someone to come along and say, you're called, you're called, you're called, you're called. Listen, let me go ahead and nail it for you. You are called. Not by me. Not by this church. But you've been called by God. Listen, they're going to try to debate Paul. Some are going to try to oppose Paul. And he's going to say, listen, I don't need your approval to speak the truth. I don't need your vote of confidence to say the things that I know need to be said because it is God who has called me. It is God who has commanded me. And I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to be obedient to him to do exactly what it is that he has asked me to do because I'm not who I am because of you. I'm who I am because of him. Let that sink in. You don't ever have to apologize for preaching the gospel of Christ. It's as if Paul is going to say to them, you may not recognize my apostolic credentials, but it's of little importance to me because I am not an apostle because of a popular election. I am not an apostle because of some appointment by other apostles. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and it has nothing to do with man. And he says also in this ministry that Paul has, he wants to be a blessing to others, not just his calling, but look at his blessing. The way that he responds to all of these churches that he writes, I love it in verse 3. Let's skip 2 for a minute and go to 3. In verse 3, he continues and he says, listen, grace to you. In peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, I thank God always concerning you. And see, there's two more things that we want to talk about with his calling, his blessing and his thankfulness. When we look at his blessing, Paul's desire for everyone was that they might know the grace of God. That's why he put it at the beginning of almost every letter that he wrote. He said, may you have the grace of God, God's unmerited favor, God's blessing given. God, I mean, think about what he's saying there. The importance of grace in the life of a believer. It's not something we need the day we were saved only. It's something that we need each and every moment of every day. He is saying to save believers, grace to you. May God's gifts of salvation, may the gifts that come through the power of the Holy Spirit, may what you need in your weakness, the strength that you will find, may you recognize that it comes from one place. It is the grace of God. And if you need anything in life, you need grace because it's that grace that we put all of our faith in. Amen. And you see, he's trying to tell them, get the right posture before God. That we are who we are because of grace. And when we have grace, guess what else comes with grace? Peace. It was God's grace that gave us peace. In the midst of their division, he's going to say, listen, you can have peace. You can deal with the sin and the death and the destruction that sin is bringing into your life. These choices that are wrecking relationships and wrecking your testimony. He's saying, listen, that's not God's plan. He wants you to have grace. He wants you to have peace, a right relationship with him that transforms your life and puts you in a situation so that no matter what you're facing, you can have consistency of peace in your life. He goes on, we think it's, it's like joy, right? It's not based in circumstances. He doesn't give peace like the world gives. He can give us a peace in the midst of whatever we're facing. And it always comes on the heels of grace. And then he says, and you know what? Not only do you have my blessing, and I want you to have grace and peace, but we see his thankfulness. And I love this about the Apostle Paul. He always writes to these churches, and he wants them to know that he's thankful for them. He wants them to know that he's praying for them. Many times he talks about the love. We were in Corinth, or, uh, Colossians before this book, and you remember in Colossians he said, I look and I see the love that abounds in you. 
And he knows that that love is from God. And he says, I see the faith that you have. And he knows that faith is a gift from God. And Paul is always recognizing in these people, he's encouraging them. He's trying to say to them, I see the work of God in you. And he says, I am thankful for what God has done. And put a little bookmark there. Because we're going to come back to it because Paul is indeed thankful. But what he's going to say is, I'm thankful for God's grace. That's what's making the difference. That's what's transforming your life. It is the grace of God. And secondly, he goes from his ministry into verse 2. He goes into the church's identity. You're going to see that Paul in the very beginning is trying to help them come to grips with who they are so they can face the things that they are doing. They can face the problems that they're having so they can deal with the issues and the confusion that is confronting them. And listen to what he says about the church because church, we're not talking about a denomination. We're not talking about an association. We're not talking about a building. When I say the church, what am I talking about? I'm talking about you. If you claim Christ, I'm talking about you. And so when I say the church's identity, what I'm saying is, I want you to know who you are. And again, be like Paul. I don't care what all of everybody else says around me. I want to be what Jesus wants me to be. I want to know who he says that I am. And he says that you have an identity. And look at how verse 2 breaks it down. He says, and this is no small thing what we're going to talk about here. He says, to the church of who? Does it say to the church at Corinth? If you look in your Bibles, it says to the church of what? To the church of God. That may seem like a no big deal whether he says the church at Corinth or the church of God, but it means something. And he's trying to get a point across that when we talk about the church, when we talk about ourselves, we aren't anybody else's. You know whose we are? We are God's. When he says to the church of God, you ever hear people use the term, that's my church. I used to hear it all the time in business meetings. When churches are unhealthy, you'll hear people stand up and say, you know what, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do that, and you shouldn't do it because why? This is my church. Whew, you're on dangerous ground when you say stuff like that. When you say stuff like that, that's when pastors start shuffling backwards a little bit. You know why? Because it's not the pastor's church either. And it certainly isn't your church. These people are God's people, God's chosen people, His Holy people, his royal priesthood, they are a people. We are a people belonging to who? Belonging to Jesus, belonging to God. The church doesn't belong to a board or denomination. It's not my church and it's not your church. It's his church. And it's God who brought us together and it's God who has put together this body, not just at Hepzibah, but at Bethlehem and at Central and at Faith and every other church that surrounds us to the ends of the earth, to Guatemala, to the Philippines, to all of those places. Have you ever wondered why when you go on a mission trip, just like John said, you get on a plane and you go to a place and you meet people that maybe you've never even met, but you walk into the midst of those people and what does it feel like? It feels like home. Why? Because the same Christ in them is the same Christ in me. Because we're part of his body, we are his, and we make up the church of Jesus Christ. And, and literally, there is a bond and a unity that is meant to be had when we come to grips with, it's not my church, and, and, and I belong to him. The Bible makes it clear. It says of you, <coughs> as, a, sorry, got a hiccup there. as an individual believer, I want you to think about what it says to you. The word of God says to you, listen, you weren't your own. You were bought how? You were bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus purchased you. The Word of God will say in Galatians chapter 2 that you have been crucified with Christ. You don't even live anymore. How can a dead person lay claim to something? He says, you're dead. You've been crucified with Christ. You don't live anymore. I live through you. And this life you live, you're going to live by faith. It's so important that we understand the church's identity, that it begins with its God. But listen to what he says. He says of the church that you must remember that you are sanctified in Christ. 
When we think about the church's identity, think about what it says. He says to the church of God that is in Corinth. So we know that the church of God exists and, and that we are the church of God. And he says that the church exists in places. And other times he's going to say it's the church in Colossians or it's the church in Philippi. Because the picture is that you've got this thing that God says is holy, that God says is righteous, that God says is good. We are supposed to be a sanctified people. We're supposed to look different. We're supposed to be growing more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. We're not being conformed to the world to look like the world. We're being transformed to look like God's Son. And I want you to think about the ramifications of that. He basically is saying to us when we think through that statement, he's basically saying to us that we must live different. Yes, we're the church. Yes, we live in a certain place. The question for us as believers is simply this. The bottom line is, is the church influencing the city or is the city influencing the church? And you can see why he's putting these sentences the way that he is because he's trying to get them to ask themselves that question. Are you the church of God in Corinth? Or has somehow Corinth gotten into and become the church of God? When we think about the city of Corinth, I want you to understand just why they were struggling so much. Folks, I'm going to say this, and I'm not telling you this so that you may keep sinning so that grace may abound. But listen, I want to offer you some hope. Believers struggle, don't they? Believers sin, right, church? I mean, you. We're trying to walk in a world, and listen, I wish it was only God's voice that spoke. But the flesh cries out, the world cries out, the devil seeks to tempt us and to destroy us. We have real enemies, don't we? And for the people in Corinth, when you understand that city, I mean, listen, this was a place that was a bustling city, and it was because it, made, it had two major ports in it. When you look at Corinth, uh, at Corinth on a map, it's in a... <laughs> I have a lisp, and this word's hard. It's an isthmus. <laughs> it's been two hard weeks because he hath risen is hard too, and then you have isthmus the next week. It's not easy. That's just a place. When you look at northern and southern Greece, you find that there's a connection in Greece where there is a landmass that's about four miles wide. That's where Corinth was. And so they would come up from two different seas, and they could port on either side of Corinth. And if they needed to go from one sea to the other, they would just unload the cargo. Some ships could literally be brought across that four miles. They had built a system to actually get them across. If they were too big to get across, they would just unload them, put them on another ship, and go on their way. It would save them hundreds of miles of travel in dangerous waters. And so Corinth was a bustling city. It was an affluent city. But with all that affluence and with all these people coming from all around the world because it was a major trade route, there were all these religions and all these different thoughts and all these gods. Remember, we're talking about a Greek culture. And in that Greek culture, there were many gods. And the god of this city was actually a goddess. And her name was Aphrodite, and she was the goddess of love. Sounds innocent, doesn't it? Except in this city, the goddess of love, they housed her statue up on what they called the Acrocorinth, which you think Acropolis over in Athens. This is the Acrocorinth, which was a hill that had a massive temple on it where they worshiped Aphrodite. And folks, there was nothing innocent about it. Out of that temple every night came thousands of female and male prostitutes. And they would go into the city and there was this mingling of religion and sex. And, and you can imagine all of the ramifications of the sins and the things that were happening in this community. And you've got to remember that when the gospel went to Corinth, this was the city that was Corinth. This was all these people knew. This is how they were raised. And folks, when we come out of, see, that's what we forget. Is some of us come out of, I mean, we were born in church pretty much, right? And we forget that not everybody was like that. We forget that people are coming out of horrible situations, situations where they didn't know right and wrong. We live in a world, literally, where we've taken away the ability to even discern and say something's right or wrong. Our kids are growing up in a culture that we can no longer say anything is wrong. Think about the ramifications of that. 
And we come with the gospel and we teach them the truth. And guys, guess what? As people are growing in their faith, they're trying to come out of this world and into the light of the gospel of Christ and be transformed or changed. We can understand why this church is struggling so much to come out of such paganism and to follow Jesus. But Paul reminds them, you were supposed to be a sanctified people. A people that look different than the world. He goes on and says that you're saints by calling. Some translations wrongly translate it saints or, 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 or to be saints. You know, it gives the idea that somehow it's up to us to be saints by calling. And folks, it's not up to us. When we by faith trust in the grace of God through His Son Jesus and His death, burial, and resurrection, in that moment that we are saved, we are not trying to become saints. What does the Bible say? We are saints by calling. Just as Paul could confidently say, I'm an apostle, we can confidently say, I am a saint because I am in Christ. I, am, I mean, it, it makes no more sense than me saying I'm righteous. But you know what the truth is? By faith, I believe that I can look you in the eye and say, I am righteous. I'm going to stand before God one day, and it's going to be as if I never sinned. I am righteous. Why? Because I have Christ's righteousness, not my own. I'm not going to clothe myself with what I've done. I'm not going to say, I obeyed the law. I was good. I'm going to say, I was a wretch. I was a worm when God found me. I was a mess when God found me. And he came, and he put all of my sins on his son, and he died for them. And then he took all of his son's righteousness and he put it in my account. And when God sees me, he sees his son. That's crazy. I mean, <laughs> but it's the truth. And it's no different when he calls us saints. He says, remember, you were sanctified. Remember, you were saints by calling. And he says, remember that if you are a Christian, then, you, then here's, here's our declaration. Christ is is our Lord, because that's what he's going to question. Are you letting Christ be Lord? We know that he's Savior, right? Most of us easily accept the Savior part of Jesus. Where we run into difficulty is, will I let him be Lord? Will I give him my life and say, my life is your life. I die. You live. You take control. Where you want me, what you want of me. Lord, that's for you to decide. I will go where you tell me to go. I will do what you tell me to do. I will become who you say that I am. Lord, I want to obey you because you are king, master, Lord. See, that's what it is to be a believer. And he's going to come to them and he's going to say, think about those three statements. Are they true in your life? Are you becoming who Christ says that you are? You say, does it matter if I confess Jesus as Lord? Yes, it does. Because it's with the mouth. We confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And with our hearts, we believe that God raised him from the dead. And then and then only will you be saved. There's no other way to be saved without calling him Lord. And without calling him Savior. And dying to self so that you might have new life. And he says, listen, it isn't just you guys in Corinth, but all around the world, everywhere the gospel is being preached and proclaimed, people are surrendering to Christ and the church of Christ is growing. And he says, we have the apostles ministry. We have the church's identity. And I'm going to finish today with the Savior's grace. I love this section because when you get into verse 4, we find out what he's thankful for. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for one reason. Listen to what he says. For the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus. He says, what has made the difference in your life? The reason you're strong. The reason you have victory. The reason anything good that is happening to you. He says, I thank God because what I see is the evidence of God moving in your life through his grace. He's given you what you don't deserve. He's working, listen, in spite of you. Aren't you glad God worked in spite of us? That it wasn't conditional on us. It wasn't dependent on us whether we could be saved or whether we could find forgiveness or hope. That God in grace and with grace reached down to sinful man. He says, listen, if I'm thankful for anything. And, and I love that because I love that even about Joseph when he sits up here and he talks. He's not trying to tell you what he's done or look at our strategy or look at the grace. No, what he's saying is God is working in spite of jars of clay. He's working in spite of us. 
He's doing amazing things, whether we're well, whether we're sick, whether we're hurting, whether we're, 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 we're not hurting, whether or not we, we have all our ducks in a row, whether it is utter chaos and confusion. You know what he says? We keep seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and God takes care of it all. We're just going to stay faithful to the mission. And he says it's God's grace. And, and so you see there in verse 4 and verse 5, he says that we're enriched by grace. That the blessings of this life and, 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 and the overflow of our life is because of Jesus. It's because of him. It's because of his grace. And he says you have this testimony and you have this speech and you have this, you're growing in this knowledge that God has given you and it is grace. And not only are we enriched by grace, but he also says in here that we are trophies of grace. Have you ever wondered why we display trophies? I hate to say this this morning. It, it burdens me to say it. Josh beat me at mini golf last night. Now, he has not been humble. I'm just going to say he hadn't been humble. But he told you I wasn't going to be humble the first time you met him. He said, listen, I'm going to beat Aaron at something. And he did. I mean, took me to the woodshed last night out there in mini golf. I didn't give him a trophy. But if I had given him a trophy, you know what he'd do? He'd display it because that's what you do with trophies. Right? Because a bunch of you go do something and you say, listen, only one of us is going to win. And then when one of us wins, we say we're the best at what we just did, right? And then we get a trophy, and trophies are displayed because it's a way of declaring glory. That's what Olympic athletes, I mean, think about it. At the end, they put them on podiums, and they play the, the, the national anthem of their country, and they stand there, and in that moment, there is a display of glory. This is the best person at this event in the entire world. Folks, have you ever thought about the fact that God intends for you to be a trophy of His grace? That when you think about how do I display God's glory, because if I was created for his glory, if, if, if my chief end, if my chief end is to give God glory, to enjoy him forever, how in the world can I do that? Listen, it is by yielding yourself to him and letting him do such a work in you, do the impossible in you, change, transform you to where you go from being a person who's bitter to being a person who has joy, a person who is impatient to a person who is patient, a person who is hateful to a person who utterly can love, even to the point of loving enemies. When we let Jesus so transform us that the world takes notice, Literally, we become like those trophies where people can say, you know what, thank God. Thank God. Look at what God has done in them, and then they find hope that if he can do it in them, maybe he can do it in me. And he says, look at your testimony. It's been confirmed that you were a believer in Jesus Christ. The work of God is in your life. And, and folks, listen, it doesn't mean because you struggle in one area of your life that God isn't working. It doesn't mean because you're struggling in one area of your life that, that you know what? He's not working in any area of your life. When you live in that kind of legalistic mentality, it is frustrating. Because I can tell you this, I've been following Christ for many years now, and I am still not the man that I want to be or that he has made me to be. But I can tell you this, I'm not the man that I was. And he is maturing me, and maturity takes time. And it is a process. And most things that we mature in, we fail at many times before we finally get it right. And aren't you glad that grace is there? <laughs> so many of us don't understand that fact. And he says, listen, you lack nothing. That's what he says when he says... You're not lacking in any gift. He says, listen, the greatest gift is the salvation that you've been given. But he says, look at you as a body of believers. I have gifted you with many things. Think of the talents. Think of the spiritual gifts that God puts into a place like this where some of us are merciful and some of us are administrators and some of us are hospitable and some of us have faith and some of us have a deep discernment. And it's all these things, and they come together, and God gifts us and, and makes us hands and feet and eyes and, and hair and all the other parts that make up a body. We all are a different part. And it comes together and it's beautiful. And he says, what are you lacking so that you can follow me? You have every gift. I love the way Peter will say it over in his books. He will literally say to them, listen, you've got the word of God. You've got the spirit of God. You've been given the divine nature. He says, you have everything, every single solitary thing that you need for life and godliness. And he says, we're without excuse. Start believing, start living out a life of faith. 
And he says that we're kept until his return. I love this part too. Because he basically says in verse 7, you're not lacking in any gift and you're awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to what he says, who will also confirm you to the end. That means that he will keep you. That means, let me put it another way as he did in Philippians, that if God starts a good work in you, guess what? He's faithful to complete it. Your sanctification will not be completed in you because of you. Your glorification won't be because of you. Your justification was not because of you. What makes you think your sanctification is because of you? He doesn't say, do better, try harder. What he says is, walk with me, abide in me, and you'll bear much fruit. Focus on being. And he says, listen, I can keep you until I return. And then he gives them a reason for all confidence in verse 9, and I love it. Because this should resonate in our hearts for eternity. God is faithful. (laughs) Don't give up. Don't lose hope. Why? God is faithful. You say, but you don't know the temptations that are befalling me. He's going to say over in Corinthians later, isn't he, in chapter 10. He's going to say, there's no temptation that has befallen you except that which is common to man. But hey, don't worry. Why? Because you're faithful. Because you're good, because you're strong, because you're able? No, he says, but God is faithful. But God is faithful. That's the story of the gospel. But God has been faithful to us, and we can be confident in God's faithfulness. And so as the musicians come this morning, I, 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 I'm sorry, I know we rushed this morning. We had a lot to do this morning. But I want you to see with me today that as we come to a close and we look at this section of Scripture, I want the church, first and foremost, to realize that this message in so many ways is for you this morning, church. And I want you to look at your life and I want you to ask the question, have you settled into the calling that God has given to you? Have you accepted the identity that Christ has said is yours? Are you still believing you're something different than what Jesus said you are? Do you think you're less than? Do you think that you're, that you're incapable? Do you think that there's no way that God can do this, that, or the other in your life? Do you feel like I have no gift? I have nothing to offer the church? That is not who Jesus says you are. And so many of you are living defeated because you have a case of mistaken identity. I want us to get back, church, to where Paul was, thankful for grace. What God could do and would do in our life. And maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. I pray that today you will come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for you. There is hope for you. And you say, well, if you knew my sin, listen, it doesn't matter your sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for the sins of all of humanity. I mean, I want you to just think with me for a second. All of our sins were committed before, I mean, I'm sorry, Jesus died for all of our sins before any of us ever committed our first sin. He knew them all in advance and he died for them. That's what the cross was for us. And he said that his love was demonstrated to you and that while you were still a sinner, that's when he died for you. He died for you when you were at your worst He didn't say, hey, come to me, all of you who got it together and all of you who who have figured it out. He says, no, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, he says, come to me. I'll give you rest. And that's exactly who some of you are today. You're tired of trying to live life without hope. And Jesus Christ is your hope. And he says, confess your sins. Repent of your sins. Follow me. I'll change you. You're thinking, I can't change. I'm not asking you to change. I'm asking you to die so that Christ can change you. Let go so that Christ can live in you. He will do what needs to be done in your life if you will learn to surrender to your Lord. So surrender to him. Repent. Believe that Jesus died on the cross to take your sins, was buried. He rose again. And if he rose again, he has the power to give you new life. And if you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior today, I pray that you will pray right where you are and ask God to forgive you. Tell him that you believe and trust that what Jesus did on the cross is enough to save you. You're not going to earn it. You're not going to deserve it. Lord, I just come to you and I ask you to change me. 
and save me because of what Jesus did, and I will let you be Lord of my life. Pray that. Right where you are, pray that. And if you pray that prayer, my hope is that you have the courage to say, I gave my life to Christ today. Just, I'll be right here. Just come forward and say, listen, Aaron, I want you to pray with me. I gave my life to Christ. I want to be part of this church family. I want to be baptized. Just come, but pray that prayer and then come. Some of you today, believers, you just need to close your eyes and get back to who Christ says you are. And let's walk this journey of Corinthians and hear how the gospel changes every circumstance in our life. So church, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to ask you to pray while the band plays. In a moment, you'll get a chance to sing. In a moment, if you want to be part of this church family and you want to join our church, come forward. If you're a baptized believer who wants to come, by letter, come. Just as soon as the music begins, feel free to walk forward, and we would love for you to join this church. Don't wait a second. Come. Father, we thank you for this day. Your word, how it speaks to our hearts how it transforms our lives. Thank you that your word is easy to understand, Lord, because your spirit helps us and it gives us understanding. And Lord, you didn't give us this word to hide and to make it hard to understand. Lord, you, you are revealing yourself to us so that we can know you and we can know ourselves and we can know our need. And so, Father, whatever our need is in this moment, meet us here. In Jesus' name, amen.